On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Evan Stark about coercive control, invisible threats, and the law. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and on today's special episode, we have Evan Stark. And for those of you that don't know who Evan Stark is, he is a forensic social worker and author of Coercive Control, How Men Entrap Women in Personal Life. His work on coercive control represents one of the most important books ever written about domestic violence and one that should be widely read by advocates, policymakers, and academics. And we were really lucky to have him uh, be on our show today. And this is more of a conversation. And I really just wanted everyone to hear uh, Evan Stark talk about course of control and everything that he learned in his career. And he's just this really uh, wonderful, enthusiastic and, and passionate person when it comes to this subject. And a lot of you have been affected by his life and you just don't know it. And from reading things online about course of control and a lot of the stuff came from him and the colleagues that he worked with uh, in, in the process. So I just really want to say uh, thank you for everyone listening and thank you to uh, Evan Stark for being a guest on our show today. And I just want to give a trigger warning for everyone that during this episode throughout it, you'll hear stories of uh, possible murder, of uh, sexual assault, of physical assault, assault. So please just take that into mind. If this is not for you, please do not listen to this episode. And with that being said, uh, without further ado, here is my episode with Evan Stark. I, I think, first of all, you have to understand why we got the idea of course and control. Because it, it, it's not like it's a new idea. I mean, but the reason coercive control has taken a hold, Brendan, is because nothing was working. But let's let's be clear about one thing. Women have been talking about coercive control since day one. The first woman we hid in our house, it must have been 100 years ago, 1850, and never forget it. I said, tell me about the violence. And she said, Evan, the violence wasn't the worst part. I was very young then. She said, violence wasn't the worst part. And, you know, and I turned to her and I said, look, talk about the violence. Because we have been raised, I have been raised, to think that violence was not only the worst part, but it was the most difficult part to talk about. And it was... Really, literally, 30, 40 years from that day that we came back and the echo of that woman's voice resonated with all the questions we had about what we were not seeing and why things were not, nothing we were doing was working. And when I say nothing was, we were doing was working, that's why we asked 
what else is going on. Because we never would have asked the question. We weren't listening to women. We weren't listening to children. We weren't listening to the men that were talking to us in our men's groups about what they were doing. We would tell them, don't talk, tell me about what names you called her. Don't talk to me about not letting her go to work. Don't let talk to me about taking the money. Tell me about the physical violence when you hit her. Because that's when a man shouldn't hit a woman. The other stuff is nagging. The other stuff is that all the crap that you spew about in family court. We all know about that. None of that matters. So we wanted to hear about the violence. 2015, England is spending more money policing domestic violence than spending on national defense. And domestic violence has not gone down one point. United States, we have arrested over a million men. 2000, year 2000, 1990, over a million men for domestic violence crimes. Domestic homicide has dropped not at all. Severe violence against women has gone down some, but minor violence has gone up so significantly that overall levels of violence are exactly the same as they were when we implemented domestic violence laws in the first place in the 1980s. So 34 years, we haven't made a dent and we've spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Our battered women's programs are as full as they ever were, and they've become revolving doors. Sure, we're keeping women alive, we're keeping them safe, but women's homicide, the killing of men has dropped dramatically. Amazing. Domestic violence will have protected men. Men are going to jail in a very minute when they might have killed a woman. So, or when they might have been killed. So the killing of men has dropped dramatically, 30-40%. But the killing of women hasn't dropped 1%. So what's happening, we feel, is that we've created a revolving door. We're arresting these guys. We're putting women in programs. The guys are getting out of jail. They're going to family court. They're getting the kids back. They're going back in their homes. They're going back in communities. Or going into other abusive relationships. It doesn't matter. And the women are no safer than they were before. They're being killed in the same numbers. Men are safer, but that's not a bad thing, but it's not the only thing we wanted to do. And so nothing's improved. So they came to us and they said, well, what can we do? Then, for the, at that moment, I go back and I'm remembering what the woman told me. Violence wasn't the worst part. And we remember that the children have been telling us since day one that it's how he makes me feel, not what judges me. That's the most important. And that men have been telling us that. That's my honor. It's, it's, it's what she makes me feel like, and I want to make her feel like that. I want her to feel dirt like that. It's what my mother made me feel like, or my father made me feel like. It's that sense of humiliation, that lack of dignity, that lack of respect. And all of a sudden, we begin to understand that we're not talking about a violence crime. We're talking about something much more significant. And that if somebody, I just want to finish and that if somebody did those things to me, women were describing. Women now were listening. Women are telling us in the shelters. He's, he's forcing me to do things that are disgusting. He won't let me go to work. 
He won't let me tell the time. Won't let me watch my favorite TV shows. Makes me sit in the kitchen for hours. All of the things, you know, that and and, and there were lists given to me by women that came to me in, in my programs. And the men would get telling me about in, in my groups and in prison. Unbelievable things. Taking away their honor, taking away their dignity, taking away their money, taking away their food, taking away their time, taking away every little thing that we take for granted in our life. And nothing was being done about it. Somebody did that to me. I'm a man. Somebody took away my dignity and honor like that. What would I do? If somebody made me do those things, how would I feel? And if somebody did them to me, how would you feel about them doing it to me? If it was done to the Ukrainian, if it was done to the Afghans, if it was done to the Jews, if it was done to the blacks, if it was done to lesbians, if it was done to anybody, but it's done to women, somehow we don't notice it as much. So the fact that it was being done to women and not being done to men and that no one was noticing it meant that there was some connection between the fact that we weren't recognizing coercive control as crime and women's status in the society. That is, in other words, it was because women were not considered full persons and certainly because children were not being considered full persons, that their lack of dignity is things that were being taken away from them but not be given any credibility. So just to make a very long introduction, much shorter, when we realized this in the women's movement, when we realized this in the government, we recognized that we had to uplift women at the same time we had to make a crime and take away their independence and their dignity. And we forget about the domestic violence altogether. We say domestic violence, yes, it occurs, it's a terrible thing. Honestly, you shouldn't hit people that you're... You're going long ways. You shouldn't hit anybody without reason. You know, it's stupid. But much more important, you shouldn't take away people's birthright to be free and independent. First, you have to give it to them. You have to take it for granted that people are free and independent. Then you have to say it's a crime. So it's now in England and Scotland, of course, been called most serious crime, more serious than kidnapping. What we found, what we found was that of the men we were arresting for domestic violence, 70% of them, 70% or more, were being arrested multiple times. In England, because that's where we implemented the law first, we did 25 years of arrest history. We discovered that 80%, 82% of all of the domestic violence offenses for 20 years have been convict, con- committed by fewer than 20% of the men. And that these men had committed multiple offenses again and again and again and again. So that when we're talking about a domestic violence incident that may occur in any family, any time, any place, may or may not come to the attention of police, may or may not come to family court, neighbors may be aware of it. I'm not interested in it. From my, from my, my standpoint, you can take your domestic violence laws and throw them in the toilet. I have no use for misdemeanor laws. I'm interested in cases where physical abuse is used in the context of taking someone's independence and rights away from them. What we found out is that in the typical domestic violence case, in 70% of the cases, it's repeated. 
Second of all, it's low level. All of these things we were doing in the 80s and 90s were under the premise that you could tell the severity of an abuse situation by whether there was injury. I did the earliest research on injury when I was at Yale. I showed that domestic violence was the leading cause of injury for which women sought medical attention. More common in rapes, auto accidents, and mugging combined. The Surgeon General and the Ronald Reagan were so impressed by that that he made it a national standard that we look for injury in policing, that we look for injury in the hospital, that we look for injury in the shelters. It turned out that was completely wrong. Although injury, the, the research wasn't wrong, the conclusion was wrong. Though injury is very important, the vast, 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 vast majority of physical abuse that occurs, 99% of it, in abusive situations, is significant not because of its seriousness. It's significant because of its frequency, its duration. It's going on an average of 5.5 to 7 years in the situations that come to our attention. That means it's an ongoing abuse. It's more like a death from a thousand cuts than it is from, you know, the punch that you see on Netflix and, you, you know, in your dramatic cases. I'm not saying severe assaults don't occur. They do. But the other thing we know about the violence that occurs in course of control is it's sexual. It occurs on the face, in the breast, in the abdomen. It's sexual in nature. It's frequent, it's ongoing, and it's low level. And sometimes, in about 20% of cases, it doesn't even exist. There's no violence at all. Or violence only begins after the woman is disabled and unable to resist. I say woman. You asked me to look at the Geneva Convention, and I did. I forgot it so long ago. The Geneva Convention still thinks of gender, uh, domestic violence as gender violence. Coercive control is not gender violence. Coercive control is gendered, but it's not only against women. Coercive control is used against men. It can be used against, by women against other women. It can be used against anybody. It can be used in a non-family situation. It can be used by businessmen. It can be used by politicians. It's used all over the world to manipulate and control people. What, what makes coercive control so significant in relationships is that because of inequality, it builds on sexual inequality in relationships to make coercive control have a gendered significance with respect to women and children and families that it doesn't have in any other context. Because women are already disadvantaged, you see, when they're unequal, or other groups are already disadvantaged. And when they're already disadvantaged by disability, for example, or by race, or by age, or by ethnicity, and then you superimpose on them a structure of terroristic control, the result is going to be much more devastating than if you or I were to be subjected to course control. So course control is not like we used to think domestic violence is aimed at women. He doesn't want to hurt her because she's a woman, necessarily. He may not hate women. And that's most important when it comes to the children. Because these guys who are hurting the women are also killing and hurting the children. The major context of child abuse, no, nothing even compares to it, is the question control of women. There's nothing even compared to that. Our research showed, the same research that we did 
killing women at Yale many, many years ago, shows that domestic violence is the leading context in which children are abused and killed. But we didn't know when we did our research, we were working in medical records, what was really going on. Now we have the data to show that when children are killed, the leading, nothing even was close to the cause of child fatality, are the same men who are abusing the women. And I'll tell you something about these men. They don't necessarily have anything against the children. I've worked with these men in prison. I've worked with them in men's groups. Many of them love children. They're the most loving men you could possibly have. They had never touched the child. Because hurting the child was for these men, a form of secondary victimization. They hurt the child because they couldn't any longer hurt the woman. Adrian Ayola, one of my clients, her husband had, she had a protection order against him. And he didn't, for the three weeks he was out of the house, he didn't touch her. So the judge gave her, and gave him visitation with the child and told her that she had to produce the child at, to the visitation. The visitation was supervised. It was outdoors, at a bridge in a public place, and supervised. He had pictures in his water when he threw the child into the river, drowned the child that day. He loved the child. He didn't want anybody to take a child away from him. But because, and I told the judges, I said, this guy was in the, said the child. But because you have forbidden him from accessing her, which he wanted to control her, he wanted to control all the resources in the household, and through her also, of course, the child, have him as a source of property. He couldn't get her, he's going to take the child. So he threw the child in the water. Never had it. And this is the typical in these cases. So what I'm saying to you is that we're changing the whole paradigm. We're saying we didn't, we didn't understand because we didn't attribute to women the same status that we do to all other human beings. Because if we had, we would acknowledge that denying these rights and privileges in everyday life, the right to decide the TV shows you watch, to dress, low the way you want to look, the way to make up the way you want, to get schooling the way you want, to do anything the way you want, to go see who you are, you want to visit your sister, you want to watch a ball game with you. These rights which we take so for granted are abrogated in a systematic way in these course controlling relationships. And then when the children are used as getting in the way because she tries to get away from them, they become the secondary victims. So to discuss uh, things that are invisible but in plain sight, what would that mean to you and what would that mean to uh, everyone out there who's dealing with this? A lot of times when I describe course control, People say to me, how do we know that? How did you see all this? And we've been looking, we've been talking to these women. They've been living next door to us for all these years, and we've never seen it. Same with the children. And my answer to that is, we do know it, that the mistaken belief when we began working with abused women way back in the 1970s was that it happens behind closed doors. Nothing about course of control 
happens behind closed doors. Almost all of it is going on at work, where he's on a cell phone, where he's making a check-in regularly, where he has people spy on her, where she has to sit at her desk during lunch hour and can't go out with the, with the other women for lunch, where she has to leave promptly and, and return promptly from her breaks. Uh, everything at, at work, is, he's, he's there. He may be physically there. He may be sitting in the parking lot. I mean, he's at the kids' schools. He's at the he's at the soccer practice. If he's not there directly, he's on the cell phone or he's spying in some other way or he has somebody else. He's in the supermarket. The neighbors know. Everybody knows, but they don't know what they know. They don't know what they know because what they know is the assumption that something is very wrong. This is not the way they want to live, but they can't understand what we did. Somebody who's extensively a very competent person is suddenly starting to look very disheveled. Somebody has lost a great deal of weight. Somebody who is very social and people over all the house is not going out of the house for two months. You know, there are all the signs that we used to associate with a severe withdrawal or that we've learned to take for granted example, during COVID. Well, maybe they're not so subtle signs. Maybe he has a black eye or maybe he's wearing too much makeup. I'm just saying that coercive control crosses social space. This is most obvious when the couple is separated. All the data we have now, what we now know is that 75%, 75% of all coercive control and domestic violence occurs against women who are single, separated, and divorced. The safest, safest are married women. So what this tells us is that the coercion control is happening in social space. What I mean by that is it's not happening in the house alone. Maybe in there, but it's happening at the school. It's happening in the supermarket. It's happening at the at at the uh, uh, in the racetrack. It's happening in the park. It's happening, and you know, it's happening in the movies. It's happening at the, everywhere. And so that, and it's touching everybody because he's trying to isolate her from all of the moorings from which she gets the capacity to resist. Isolated from friends, from co-workers, from social contact, from people who might recognize her. I mean, I've had clients, I've had clients who were star athletes who didn't have another social contact in the world, even on Facebook who couldn't go on Facebook. Uh, people who are celebrity skaters, you know, I mean, the stories they tell about isolation are not to be believed. But the fact of the matter is that the knowledge of this is out there. I'm not saying coercion control is easy to police. It's not. I mean, it, it, it is a, a very long discussion, but I, I, I just want the listeners to understand that this is an ongoing problem. Person control in most of these relationships lasts, as I said, now five to seven years without an intervention. But to police something that's been going on that long, that has that many angles to it, that many elements, violence, isolation, sexual abuse, intimidation, manipulation, 
all kinds of things like that, like embezzlement. It's difficult. These guys move. It's sometimes in one, one case recently in Cambridge, England, it took us two years to prosecute the case and three different police departments because he moved so many times. This is not your Saturday night domestic violence police roundup. You know, you put them out of jail, you bring them back. Once you get them out, we're now confronting guys with 14 years in prison in Scotland for coercion control. That's a heavier sentence than murder in Scotland. Than murder and kidnapping. So, so, and, and to do this, you need specialized police. And the reason we're getting specialized police is because we have a woman prime minister. Not because people have suddenly woken up and said, oh my God, we didn't know these things were happening. They did know. We knew they were happening in our house because we grew up with the tyrannical parts. We knew they were happening next door because we heard the noise from the driveway. But we didn't, and we saw it on Archie Bunker, and we saw it on Jackie Gleason, and we saw it in all the comic books we read, and we saw it in all the, But we knew it was happening. But because we didn't give the credibility to the people who were being victimized that we give to full persons, they have the dignity to not have those things done to them, to not have them be questioned about the least thing they said or the least thing they thought or the least action they took. We didn't give it the weight that it deserved. So in countries where women are beginning to be given both status, we will want them to come to work and be able to speak in their own voice about what their own thoughts are then they cannot have somebody monitoring how long it takes to drive home. We cannot have somebody having them check in on every thing they spend at the supermarket or every phone call they make to their mother or a very dire energy. So that kind of accountability now has to be a matter of public record instead of a matter of personal demand. And so this is this is a new world, right? you know, and it's not something we can easily we can easily transition to because a few states adopt laws. Yeah, so what needs to happen in the United States to adopt what has happened in England? Uh, what needs to change? Well, I think what what is happening in the United States is that as we become more aware of the importance of women and children in the workforce and the extent to which the future of this country is going to depend upon a young workforce and an actual workforce, not necessarily on physical strength, but on a kind of agility and communicability. You know, the, the new technologies all require interface. They all require insight. They all require agility. And the men and women men and women and children who are going to do that have to be as free as they can possibly be. So as people become more and more aware of the restraints that keep the economy from functioning at that level, I think more and more people will get into positions of power who value that kind of liberty and freedom for all persons, not just a few male persons you know, happen to be male by the maybe white skin person. And maybe it won't happen. I mean, 
Sometimes it does happen in England that happened when Theresa May was in. And it doesn't necessarily mean left-winged. You know, in, in England, our champion was Theresa May. It was the conservative Tory, the Tory prime minister. And in Scotland, there was a, a more left-wing woman who did it. In Australia, somebody else. So, you know, I think it depends. But I think what will happen gradually is that we'll realize that domestic violence is a broader issue than merely physical harm, that it embraces a range of rights and liberties that extend to the most fundamental, to the most trivial. Uh, I mean, these are, like I say, these are rights and liberties that are written down in, in the Bill of Rights. You know, we're not just talking about not letting people speak at all. We're letting them, we're talking about little liberties, like how much time you spend in the bathroom and how long you cook your food and how you chew your food. It, it, you have no idea, Ben, until you read the lists that women have given me or tell me what they recite to me, the things they've been made vacuum. I have some of them in my book, Mind Question Control, vacuum until you can see the lines. You know, the... the, the these are things that nobody would even think to regulate in your and my life, you know. But they do it because when you micromanage somebody to that extent, you eviscerate that piece of humanity without which you can't contribute as a person. And so personal life now has become something much more sacred than it ever was in the old days, where it was a, all right, it was a place where you had your, personal power, man king is his castle. But now personal life is a place where the essence of the future is being born in every human being. And I think as Americans come to value that, you know, they'll begin to make crime out of taking that away. And I think I said with you that it will disappear as a crime. I think Corson control is on its way out now that we've taken it seriously. But again, without equality, you can't, you can't, because the extent to which inequality is allowed and occurs in our households on an individual level is so widespread that no amount of policing alone could correct that without, at the same time, lifting people up as a class. No law is going to improve things in itself. That's the first thing I'm saying. Because, as I say, because these things are not individual to individual household problems. But to the extent the law in Scotland, which is our ideal law, the Scottish abuse law, the law in England is constantly changing. It's, it's, been, it's been amended four times since they originally passed it in 2015. So it's, it's, it's better. It's complicated. Police are learning to use it. You know, it's not the gold standard. In Scotland, the law is called the domestic abuse law. It has multiple parts. I, I don't want to go through the whole law now, but I'll say, I'll say just this. It includes child abuse. So that it's not a law of, of abuse of women only, but it includes children as part of that. We don't have a separate child abuse thing anymore over here. The old idea that child abuse is a you know, crime of crazy mothers, you know, and belong to social welfare. There is some child abuse like that. Three, five percent of all harm to children occurs in that context. But most serious harm to children 
and most coercive control of children, taking away the rights and liberties, and most killing of children, takes place in the context of this stalking, this manipulation. And these are all now enumerated as separate offenses under coercive control. And this is because, Brandon, when rape occurs in the context of coercive control, sexual assault, it's not like a rape occurred, a rape by a stranger. Sexual assault in the context of coercive control is a completely different offense from the standpoint of policing, from the standpoint of the criminal justice system, from the standpoint of the victim and the offender, than rape when it occurs against a stranger. It's frequent. You know the partner. It includes rape as routine. In other words, where sexual abuse occurs without refusal and force, but because she's too frightened to say no, and because she's been doing it so much, it includes a whole range of sexual offenses in addition to, to rape, which cross the gamut, sexual harassment, all kinds of things. And it's ongoing. It lasts, and it's, it's usually, sometimes women report 50, 60, 100 rapes occurring within the context of five and six years. So that's the thing that's now included under Scottish law and for which you get something like five times the sentence that you would have gotten for a stranger rape. Raping your wife, which wasn't even a crime in the United States in Bill Brown, I believe, recently, is now understood not only to be a firm part of a large pattern of horrendous conduct, but a more serious crime precisely because the assumption of assent is coerced and combined with these forms of humiliation. Stalking. And I just wanted you to understand that even though these offenses are offenses when they're committed against strangers already, and this was part of the confusion in England. In England, they had originally, not because of Theresa May, but because problems we were having with the, the Tories in the, in the justice government, in the government. But in England, they said, well, look, we don't need any of these other things to be crimes. They're crimes already. Stalking's a crime, rape's a crime, childhood's a crime, blast of violence is a crime. Let's just take what's new about courts of control, psychological abuse, and let's make that a crime. I said, no, that's not right. That's what they did. And when they did that, the police were confused, women were confused, we were confused, everyone's confused, and nothing worked. But Skyland recognized that coercive control is a bespoke offense. When, when your grandfather, when my grandfather made us a bespoke suit, he came in and said, I want a bespoke suit. I want one like Johnny's father. I want it to look exactly like that one. Make it just for me. It's going to be just my suit. That's one of the bespoke offenses. When you see one coercive control case, you've seen one coercive control case. Because each guy is different. Each woman is different. Each set of liberties, each set of hopes, each set of dreams is different. And so when he wants to squelch out those dreams, those hopes, that woman's architecture of offense is going to be designed in a way that's typical to her. So that stalking, when it occurs against strangers, the guy follows you, he's a weird movie actor or something, you know, you got an obsession with a movie actor or a movie actress or a rock singer or something you want to 
you know, you follow them for six months, so you track them on a Facebook or the, the internet. Stalking in course control begins in the house. He's tracking her in the bedroom. He's monitoring her phone calls. So, again, like rape, the stalking offense when the course control is no bit partner, it begins when the people are still together, not when they're separated. It's by someone she knows. It's using multiple technologies, and it's highly associated with violence. Where stalking by strangers is rarely associated with violence. Stalking by partners is highly associated. We have a stalker in coercive control. Very often you get a homicide. He doesn't want to kill her. Murder is very rare in coercive control. So severe injury. It's only when he can't have her that no one else will. And it's at that point he may kill her. He may dispose of her. And in that, so is isolation part of that course of control as long with stalking? Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. The idea, isolation, from all of the mornings from which we get our identity, isolation from friends, from family, isolation from work. Once he has her isolated, then her dependence is much more assured. But the other thing is that victims also isolate themselves. You know, I mean, for instance, in this case that, um, uh, what was her name? You asked me to look at the laundry case. Yeah, the Gabby Petito case, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember that case very well. I mean, I talked to some of the police involved in that case. It was a very frustrating case. But, but, you know, she, in some sense, isolated herself because she told the police, it's my fault. I mean, they. I mean, they should have known. I mean, she had bruises all over her arms and stuff like that. So the policeman knew enough to say, "Does he hit you?" You know, he doesn't. He didn't know enough to say, "Well, she has bruises on her arm. He's committed an offense. He should be arrested." Because then he would have had to charge him with domestic violence and make an arrest. Instead, he separated them. He thought he could ease them, you know, and stuff like that. But, but victims often isolate themselves because they believe. First of all, they're ashamed. But often, self-isolation combines with forced isolation. Often, others isolate you. They don't want any part of you. They don't want. They don't like to be with you, with your own social events. In the Sally Sharon case, we, I, we the case of Sally Sharon was a woman who hit her husband twenty-seven times with a hammer, killed him, and she was sentenced for uh, murder. And then I helped bring her appeal before the high court in England and then we got her out of jail. Um, but in, in that case, there was, was no very little physical violence. They had been married, I don't know, 27, 30 years. And there had been very little physical violence. But outside of that, no violence whatsoever to speak of in 30 years of marriage. But um, there was a tremendous amount of, uh, of isolation and such such a degree of self self effacement that resulted from that isolation. That she was blaming herself. She was hearing his voices whenever she went out. But but the main thing oh, uh, the main thing was to give the sense that what we conveyed to the court, what I think I conveyed to the court of appeals. I mean, this woman was so convicted by everything. You know, she had every newspaper in the country against her. And, uh, you know, the guy was a, 
hardworking used car salesman. She, he, she had just he had just signed a divorce agreement. She was living separately. She came home. They had a reunion. He sent her out to buy him. They were going to get remarried. She agreed to a prenuptial, a post-nuptial agreement, a settlement of 140,000 pounds she was going to get. He sent her out to buy a lunch in the rain. She came back. He was talking to his girlfriend on the phone, or he had been talking to his girlfriend on the phone. She served him his lunch, and then when he turned around to eat his lunch, she chopped him. And she rolled his body in a, a rug. I, I don't mean to smile, but, it's, but she rolled his body in a rug, and she wrote a note that says, I love you, and she, um, but the the thing was, when she left him after 27 years of marriage, she tried to get a place by herself. And she looked at herself in the mirror, and she tried putting lipstick on. She also, All she saw was him, his disapproval. So that when she hit him with the hammer, those blows, the imago, the, the, the image that she was killing, was not this little guy that she was married to, who was dead after the second handball problem. But the guy she was killing was this huge image in herself that had taken over everything that she was and replaced everything that she had with him, himself, so that she had to ask herself what to look like in the morning, what she should do during the day, when she should laugh, when she should talk, when she should smoke a cigarette. And believe it or not, the high court and much of England understood that. They understood that. And there had been a, a soap opera on British radio, which had had a case just a week, a few weeks before the verdict came down. The Archers, it was called. And Mrs. Archer had been told by Mr. Archer that she couldn't wear the scrappy dress to the ball. And she had stabbed him on the radio. And I have 40 million listeners all over Europe that is so popular. And they had a trial on the radio. And they, I don't know if you know Dr. Who was, but from the serial Dr. Who, but they had they had the actors from Dr. Who, they, they, the prince was on the jury. They had all their royalty. They had the stars of the cinema and everything was on the jury. An hour-long radio show to try Mrs. Archer for stabbing her husband, Jeffrey, for not letting her wear this dress. And she just claimed course of control, and the jury acquitted her. And that was a week before Sally Challen was released from jail by the high court in England. So it's not like the law works. And the law is the law. Some laws work, some laws don't. Some police do well, some police don't do well. You know, police have a hard job. And prosecutors have a hard job. But there's a new understanding of it. And the extent to which the law becomes a vehicle of that new understanding, there'll be change in the world. And the extent to which it's just used as a, another addition to the accoutrements we have to try to make people feel a little better and safer at home. God bless them. But it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. So a new law of course, control is in itself nothing but a statement. 
but one that recognizes the changes that are afoot. That's something. So before uh, we end off our show, you know, one of the reasons I wanted you to come on the show was just so people could learn about you in a, in a way, because you are this unsung hero for a lot of people. Well, in a way, because a lot of people's lives have been affected by you and don't know who you are in your field. Everyone knows who you are. And for the people, that listen, whatever I feel, it's, I've been retired from teaching. I don't really have to feel anymore, but I'm a forensic social and everybody for whom I've testified knows who I am because most of them have not gone to jail. <laughs> well, when I saw you speak, uh, when I was just watching the, your videos on YouTube, I said to myself, I just want to have you on your show and that everyone should, uh, sorry, on my show, uh, just so that everyone should experience you as a person. The old uh, man person. Uh, well, your infectiousness and your a love of this subject in helping people within this. Um, a, a lot of people's lives have been affected by you who listen to our show that don't know that because of everything and all the research that you've done. And I want them to appreciate you for all the work that you've done and for them to hear you and hear what a great person you are and the enthusiasm that comes out of your voice. I just thank you. And I thank you for your work and you're a much younger person. I can see that, but still, nevertheless, I, I, if you've just taken your hair off, to do me a, the honor, <laughs> I, I appreciate that a great deal, but it's a, it's a great service. But I want to thank you, and especially we need the young voices. But this is, I want to say something. This is a depressing business I'm in. I mean, I deal with people who have experienced the horrors that are not even written about in the worst books. And the worst Netflix films make most of the lives that I see look good. But I wanted to tell you that when you've seen people arise from that kind of a down with the hope that these women have shown, then it's easy to go for somebody like Sally Chow before a court, even though she's done a horrible thing which killed her husband, and to say, listen to that voice sing and and hear what it would have sounded like if it had been crushed when she was a young person. And to really appreciate what these young women were telling us way back in the 60s and 70s when they came forward and they said, you know, our bodies ourselves or let, let, let us sing. And know how important it was for us as young men to hear our voices sing and see our children and our grandchildren. I mean, it's just such a rewarding business I'm in and we're in. It can get you down sometimes when you look around and you see what they're doing to the world. But when you see how people rise from the depths and, you know, the, the lengths to which, put it this way, if, if nothing else, I learned that the lengths to which men are willing to go to take away what women have must mean that there's something really worth that they're worth taking. And I want to know what it is that's what I, we spent our lives trying to work around. Well, I'm glad we can be some service to you guys. I mean, uh, 
keep you keep you busy. Well, I just want to thank you on behalf of everyone who's listening. And uh, for those of you that want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's the button that says Guest Form. Click on that button and it will take you to our Guest Form page. And you can read all of our instructions. And after you read the instructions, send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And if you want support, we have a support group at our website. You click on the support button at our website, and that takes you to our very own safe social network. On there, we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We have forum boards. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes. And if you just want to support the show, please do join our support group. It helps us out a lot if you join. And if you need even more support, please do go to our friends at domesticshelters.org. And at domesticshelters.org, you can find articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. They can connect you with local resources like shelters, and they can find ways to help you heal and move forward. So please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today. And that is it. So from myself and Evan Stark, we hope you have a good night.